podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. So uh, when you don't talk, what is the thing holding you back? Again, I guess it's the the anxiety, the embarrassment, the stigmas that are attached to mental health, you know, as a an apparent leader of people. Yeah. Um, being in the thicker stuff in previous you know, employment or roles to being someone who can't even abide being in a crowd anymore or a yeah. crowded place. Yeah. Um, you know, my tolerance of others is out the window. <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy and it's those sort of things that if you find yourself in a how can I put it? bit of a, a dark place yeah it's those things that keep coming back to you because you feel worthless yeah and it's anything really but yeah of course know. when when you say um in in crowds and things like that i think that's quite a natural fear to to have um I, for some people yeah i mean pre i would suggest 2005 with a when i was a police officer and we had the london bombings yeah um my work involved being around lots of Lots of people, huge groups of people, you yeah. know, on a transport system. I was a British transport police officer. Yeah. And so, therefore, working in this area, yeah. you know, East London, wherever, up and down the country, surrounded by thousands of people, especially, say, football days and yeah. other big events, it never bothered me. No. Um, but having seen the devastation of what happened after the bombings in 2005, you know, everything becomes that much more, more heightened. Yeah. Your, your response... Um, the way you you look at situations, as a police officer, you, it's an uh, I don't know how to describe it best. It's an uncanny thing. You get into a large group of people, yeah. and straight away you're analysing. That's a wrong one. She's a wrong one. Yeah. He's a wrong one. Yeah. Mm, not sure about him. Wonder what they're doing. Why are they here? And you're always looking for an angle. It's just a natural thing. Yeah, you, you can't be taught it. It's you know going back to even when I was a young squatter, you're doing the same thing. You're profiling. Yes. But now. I really can't abide being in huge groups or large groups. It, it's a struggle to, to use the transport system now yeah. um, to get from A to B because I am looking yeah. all the time. I can't help it. You know, my anxiety levels go through the ceiling. So the same um, kind of cognitive function or mechanism is at play, but your ability to be within that data centre of yeah. your mind Absolutely. It, is... It's all over the place. And this is... One of the, the bizarre things with, with post-traumatic stress, um, you know, I'll, I'll use this term loosely. Yeah. Normal people sure. will have a very tidy desk, a very tidy filing system, yeah. and you deal with day-to-day stresses and struggles because that's life. Yeah. However, when you're dealing with trauma on a regular basis, yeah. uh, unfortunately, as I did and my colleagues still do within the British Transport Police and the emergency services generally... Um, you're stepping outside of what's perceived to be the norm. Yeah. Because what you're dealing with is anything but normal. But you normalise it. Because it's, it becomes... The frequency of it is... Absolutely. ...is like my day-to-day of normality. Your day-to-day of normality is seeing these high-end trauma situations. Yep. Yeah, and, and you just switch off to it. It's just another dead body. It's just another bit of a body under a train. Yeah. It's just another family you've got to go and speak to to deliver a death message. It always becomes it's just, but inside it's killing you. Yeah. Um, and 
the hardest thing with with that is that when you're um for instance when i was based around this area and in fact at bishop's gate her police station we might get a call to a person under a train um i'll jump in a car or a van put the lights on my partner being in, in the vehicle with me yeah. and off we go he would be insistent that he did what the log so that would be um, a booklet where you would record all the details of those attending and you know the factors around why we're there and I would say to him, no, no, I'm doing it. And we would have almost a, a comedic fight in the car whilst I'm trying to drive on the blue lights because I knew that when we got to the situation, he would be doing the log and I'd be damn picking up the bits and pieces because he couldn't deal with it. Oh. And that's how we, you know, that's how we worked. And that made him no less a person. Sure. You know, absolute admiration um, for him. You know, we, we're very close anyway. Um, but one thing we wouldn't do is we... When, when we got home, we wouldn't talk to our wives and tell them what we'd been doing, nor anyone else. Because you didn't want to share the pain, right? No. And, and you know, the horror of what we'd just been dealing with. You know, for us, the gallows humour would really come into its, into its own. And trust me, to anyone outside of that circle, shocking. But... <laughs> well, I think it's the duty of the individuals hearing that kind of stuff to, yeah. to realise they need to walk a mile in the shoes of someone and... Who's yeah. doing that? You know, again, I think, being very open and honest, anyone that's in the emergency services, back in the day, even now, you know, they're not looking for a ticker tape parade every time they go and deal with something traumatic or a, a nasty incident. It's, it's your job, and, and we've got to do that. However, there should be something in place yeah. that allows you, within that job time, to, to download um, yeah. and, and be able to sort of calculate what you've been doing because, as we said earlier on, it goes above what's perceived to be normal. You know, you really are dealing with horrific stuff, especially um, with the British Transport Police um, and you look at our roads, traffic police, you know, the fatalities they deal with. Yeah. And, you know, again, I dealt with a number of those incidents. Um, and modern-day policing, it's, it's almost, if not worse, than battlefield conditions. Really? Because, yeah, you know, young kids um, going out, you know, stabbing each other. You know, thankfully, I only had to deal with a few of those incidents when I was in. Um, but both times you end up doing CPR on the victim who's clearly dead um, and of a young age. Mm. And you're with that person from the time the air ambulance turns up and says, we'll get him in the back of an ambulance because obviously they're not, they're not with us anymore. Sure. Um, and you're still working on that person, and you get them to the A&E, and you get them into the crash unit, you know full well that your workload's just increased tenfold because you've now got a, a crime scene to deal with. Yeah. You know that young person ain't ever coming back yeah. through one act of stupidity. Yeah. Um, and once you've dealt with that, and you've got everything that you need to have, and you hand the job over to those more um, professional than us mere old bobbies, the CID department, um, and you've given them everything because you've done their work for them, and then you just move on to the next job. Mm. But where do you go with what you've just dealt with? Mm. And the example I've used there was, uh, was a live matter for me. Um, the kid was uh, 16 and a bit, one stab wound. He was dead before he hit the floor. No you know. way. Um, my oldest lad at the time was probably not far from that. So you've always got that reflection on your personal life as well. You know. But what... Um so I'm just going to 
zoom back into no, how you grew up and your, you know, yeah. you see like you at sixteen and things like that. You, right. What perception did you have on the world um, from a, like a life and death perspective? What was your kind of relationship with death as a young person? Um, you know, until you have a family death, it's. You, I guess your perception is really what you see on the telly and on, and on films. You know, people keel over, clutching their chests, or, you know, they get shot and fall backwards a number of times, and it doesn't happen like that, and we're all aware of that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, until I had my first death within the family, um, I would suggest that at my time of life then, so back in the, the early 80s when I was around sort of 16, um, it didn't affect me because I was focused on football. I was playing semi-pro football. I was looking to become a professional football player. And that was my focus. And girls, really, as we all do. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't until I had that first experience of a family member dying that it becomes a bit real. I wasn't there when they died, but to go and, you know, pay my respects in the funeral parlour. Yeah. You know, you're looking at someone that was only days before the life and soul, probably the matriarch of the family. Yeah. And they look completely different, yeah. dead, yeah. as yeah. most people do. Yeah. You know, all the wrinkles are ironed out. They don't look what they were. Yeah. Um, and, you, yeah, you, you get a different perspective. Um, I remember uh, my, my sister's uh, daughter. She was barely two. She got diagnosed with uh, leukaemia, and we thought we were going to lose her. And there was all these kiddies on the hospital ward just bundles of joy, absolute fun, doing their thing, running around the, the ward and, you know, all their drips and stuff like that. And all the adults were all crying and just being adults because <laughs> we, you know, we couldn't comprehend what they were doing. Yeah. However, when I came away from that, again, my perspective on, I guess, life yeah. and what was going on in the world, we had the Cold War was still pretty strong. We were just getting over the Falklands conflict. We'd yeah. had the Iranian embassy siege, all these things that have been whacked into your life that yeah. really you know were going on anyway but we didn't really care or, or know much about yeah so you know i guess i was pretty naive at that age to it and, until it actually happened yeah you know and then you do get a different viewpoint well i certainly did yeah do you, do you think it's um, important for people to have a more healthier understanding of death and what i mean by that is so if somebody dies of an old age or let's say they, you know, they've been treating themselves badly their whole life, eventually health kicks in and, and you know, that, that's one thing. Somebody in a conflict in, on the street or in a, a car crash, a stabbing, whatever it may be, or a suicide, that feels like something that happened just on that day, right? And it could have gone a different way if someone had intervened. And when I meet people who have been through... Um, We've met a few people now, Alvin and I, uh, who've been through trauma. Um, they, a lot of the time they're, they're living with, if only on that day something X would have happened. And, 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 and we, they came to the conclusion that if more people who haven't experienced firsthand what actually happened like that, they, they, they may take their actions into consideration and, and on the day think a bit more about the result of them. Yeah, do you know, to be able to sit here now and give you that, that perfect answer to a very difficult question. If I could do that, you know, we'll all be walking about in million-dollar suits, I think. Um, today, um, I feel personally that, you know, a lot of the kids are going out stabbing each other, um, irrespective of their background, their cultures. There's no respect for life. It's, 
it's meaningless, it's pointless. You know, you look at the way some of these gangs operate, um, and again, it matters. No, you know, it doesn't matter where they come from, who they are. The mentality is, well, life's cheap. And to go and, as in the words of the kids that are doing it, shank someone yeah. that I was often threatened with as a police officer. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, if you were to see the knock-on effect that that has on not only clearly the deceased person or someone who will now be living with life-changing injuries, yeah. but for the family members, for the people that have to turn up and deal with that incident, you know, I question it all the time. Um, when people used to commit suicide on the railway, I used to, every time I got a call, and I dealt with more than my share yeah. uh, of those, and I used to think, such a selfish, selfish thing to do. Such a selfish thing because yet you're ending your pain. That's quite clear. Poor old train driver, he can't turn or she can't turn left or right off the track. They'll see you at the very last moment, if at all. Yeah. Then we've got to turn up and pick up the mess. The people on the train have got to deal with the knowledge that they've been involved or on a train that's been involved in such an incident. All the people trying to get home from their daily jobs. It, the knock-on effect is... It's catastrophic at some stage. And I've been, uh, if there's three ends to something, I've been on every free end. I've been the guy that's had to turn up and pick up the deceased. Mm. I've been on the tube when we've actually hit someone. Yeah. I've been a passenger waiting on a platform when yeah. the train's been cancelled because someone's you know, committed that act. But do you know what? It's not until you actually find yourself in that situation as I did when I lost my job as a police officer yeah. and my world collapsed. Yeah. Again, your perception of everything changes. Of course. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I remember vividly sitting on this embankment waiting for the fast train to come and yeah. just get me out of where I was because I felt worthless, useless, everything that you can associate yeah. with that very, very dark place. Yeah. And that was me. And I saw the train come in and I yeah. thought, all I've got to do is stand up and fall in front of it. That's it. That's me done. Yeah. Is what, it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. I, I don't think um, you can judge it from that angle because all the things that... And you use the phrase normal, so let's just use that. Yep. You're functioning on a day-to-day basis and you, you know, you're not... Gonna, I don't even like the word commit. Like I know yep. you know, the concept then makes it sound like the person's doing something wrong when really they're just trying to, they can't get through that day. They may not want to die forever. They may just want to not be yeah. here and suffer anymore. But when someone's going through those, um, I, I haven't been through mental health issues that got me that close, but um, I have family members who have and um, extended family members who sadly did... Uh, did uh, kill themselves on the train mm. actually uh, um, and um, I th- th- all of their senses of what's right, real, important are removed. You're kind of in a stripped bare room where you don't recognise anything and the last thing you can do is project any kind of tomorrow. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? You, you're in a situation where you, you're not functioning with all the faculties, no. right? I, I would suggest that when I look back at my incident um, you know, I never ever thought that I'd be a person that was going to do that, let alone tell everyone that I did it, because of the, the person I was allegedly, you know, the focus of a lot of stuff, um, always getting in and out of mischief, even when I was in the police. I was always, you know, <laughs> I was always at the forefront of something. Um, 
And if you'd have asked me 20 years ago, would you see yourself taking your own knife? I would have just laughed at you. You know, but when you get to that moment, because you're, you're in such a bad place, mm. for me, I had a moment of absolute, I don't know what's the right word, clarity. I didn't feel frightened. I didn't feel embarrassed. All I knew I had to do was just stand up and take two steps forward, and then, you know, the train would do the rest. But as that train got closer, and I mean very, very close, I don't know what it was. Um, I thought about my wife and my kids. Sure. And I put them through hell. And I'd only just realised, and hence that's why I was where I was. I'd gone some eight years struggling, um, and because I was a bloke, wouldn't talk about my feelings. Um, and the, the reality of what I'd done, you know, my oldest child hated me. Um, to have found that out later as, as a dad is probably one of the most hurtful things you could ever wish to I hear, that imagine, your child yeah. hates you because yeah. of the way you were. Yeah. You know, we get on our ass on fire now, thankfully. Great. Um, my middle son, pretty much the same. Didn't know whether he was coming or going because they took the brunt of all my anxieties, my feelings, that depression. Mm. You know, I was drinking. Um, I didn't go to the other side and be violent. I was just very angry all the time. Were you time. isolated? Were you on your own quite a lot yeah, when you were I, doing I this? Would, um, I would come home from work and I would go straight to the fridge and I would pour myself a beer or a very large glass of wine, which would be followed by the same again. And I had to do that so I could go to bed and try and sleep because every night I was having nightmares. Yeah. I was reliving the incidents. And my wife was a police officer um, and I felt it was just completely unjustified if I was to tell her exactly what I'd been dealing with on that day because why would I need to unload all of that horrible stuff onto her when she was doing a very unpleasant job herself? You know, she was a child protection officer. So it was, it was a difficult thing to do. So I just buried my head in the sand. And Bloody hell, you're, you're both kind of dealing with a lot of drama oh, there. hell of a lot. How does she deal with it? As in her 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 job, if you, if we can say talk about it. Yeah, I mean she's retired now. Um, I, I think now, I think during a, a thirty year career that she had, we've only ever spoken a couple of times about incidents that she's dealt with that have really upset her or caused a lot of distress. Um, but we just simply wouldn't talk about stuff. It was... It's really weird. Well, I don't... That doesn't sound too weird. Do you, do you kind of create a new world of fun and, and discussion that was unrelated to your jobs? Like, um, you just stepped into a different yeah. world? yeah. I mean, you know, I was still playing football and I'd go out and get rid of some of my aggression doing that. And, yeah. You know, or I would just listen... I love rock music. Yeah. So, you know, I'm into me rock music or me music in general. Yeah. Um, I'm very grateful. My oldest lad's a guitarist. My middle boy's a drummer. They're both playing some wonderful stuff. So oh. I'll just sort of... That was my get-to safe place. Um, the wife, I guess, she would just try and wrap herself up in the family thing um, and really just try and keep the, the kids happy because I was making everyone unhappy. You know, so it was that, yeah. that weird balancing thing. And, and we did it, and, and trust me... Um, when I came to sort of find myself in that very dark place, I was about to lose my wife and my children. Yeah. It was all going south. 
you know. Do you think, in retrospect, then, if you're so, you sound like um, a lot of people's dads, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is you know stoic, nothing. um, You were doing the, the right job of protecting. You, yeah. your, your kids from from the horrors of the world you, yeah. and I think a lot of people would agree with that but they would also um, you might have also passed on something that wouldn't have been so helpful which would have been you know he just seemed to deal with it so maybe I'll just try and deal with it right absolutely and it, it, it's a domino effect yeah right? um, I look at the way I was brought up um, you know I was born in the east end of London um, my father was um, both my parents lived in east London um, and yeah, it was tough times for them. Uh, my dad was a permanent night worker. Um, I'm the eldest of three other kids, and you know, it was tough. It, you know, there we go down that line of, you know, we were brought up in the gutter, and it, you know, we did. Well, we weren't far from it. Um, you know, <laughs> I remember mum not eating because she couldn't afford to put dinner on the table for herself. So you know, it, I had a great childhood, as tough as it was. Um, and touching on some, well, I, I was um, abused as a child, sexually abused by a babysitter and later on a football coach. I never told anyone about that. Yeah. Um, I just cracked on, and the worst thing with that is that I didn't, being the eldest brother, it was like, especially with the babysitter scenario, did that ever happen to my, my brothers or my sister? And throughout my life, I've always been very protective of other people. Sure. So as I've grown up playing the football stuff, I was always a captain of the team. Don't know why, but I just managed to, you know, whatever level I was at, I was the captain. Yeah. So I'm looking out for the rest of the guys in the team. I joined the army and I went into, uh, into the infantry and I joined the 3rd Battalion, the Royal Green Jackets, which is now the Rifles. And it's unheard of anyone to, to be promoted or anything like that unless you've done at least three years within the regiment. And, you know, within three or four months, I found myself on a junior NCO's card. And it was, and that's how my life's been. I joined the police very late in life. Um, as soon as I've done my two years sort of probationary period, and I was then 34, 35 years old, yeah. um, all of a sudden I find myself in an acting sergeant's role. And, you know, I've left the police, um, and we're doing this charity, or we're an organisation at the moment, a non-for-profit organisation, hopefully soon to get our full charitable status. But we're doing the same thing. We're looking out for those, yeah. those people that need help. And it's just, I don't know, some people say, oh, it's like the circle of life. You know, something bad happens and something good comes out of it. Well, I can sort of see that. It's, it's a bit of a strange yeah. strange thing. No, it is. I think um, lots of, th- it's interesting. Something bad happens, something good comes yeah. out of it. There's also the, obviously the, other, the other thing. If something bad happens and people then, you know, repeat and live in a world that, yeah, they're trying to understand and yeah, process. Absolutely. I mean, I got told off last week by the wife um, because we've done a couple of videos on our social media um, for PTSD 999. Um, and we've spoken quite openly, myself and Simon, the other co founder, about our issues. Um, now, no one in my family uh, was aware of the child abuse. Mm. Um, I only told my wife about 15 years ago, um, and that came out of some conversation. Um, and she was shocked. Can I just ask, because yeah. this is such an amazing opportunity to ask somebody who's, um, who's processing, processed part of it as well, how, what that moment felt like. Because that must have been 
a real moment of you verbalizing to someone who knows you, loves you, trusts you, you've built a family with, that there's some part of you you never shared. Yeah. Um, how can I best describe that jaw-dropping moment? But I was very fortunate because the wife had been and was at that time involved with transportation. Yeah. So although she was shocked, she was, um, she was there for me. But at that moment, had we not been in the situation we'd been in, we'd been out with her work colleagues, and I wasn't uh, in, in the police then myself, um, one of them said something so flippant, it just enraged me, because I had buried that. Yeah. I buried both of those incidents. Yeah. And that is often, um, as I've found out since we've been doing the, 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 the organisation with PTSD 999, there's often something from your childhood yeah. that will be... Um, the catalyst for something you know later on in life. I wasn't aware of that. Um, so she was there for me. The second episode, I had completely forgotten about. Really? And so a friend of mine who I grew up with, who lived around the corner to me um, as young kids, um, he contacted me, oh, blimey, just after Christmas and said, I need to speak to you. And straight away, I'm thinking to myself, well, hello. And when he did contact me, I gave him the answer before, before he asked me the question. And I would suggest that I found that a lot tougher telling the wife about the second episode than I did the first because all of a sudden everything, my little world's come crashing down again around me because I'm now reliving those incidents um, as a grown man and, and this job is going um, through the sort of legal process as we speak, so you know, I can't say any more than that. Sure. Um, but it was, it was very tough because it's brought back a lot of stuff that our brains are very good at dealing with. And sure. that's like burying it, forgetting it, you know. Um, and, then, and so I sort of expressed that in a, a brief sort of video that we did, say, last week, one about the child abuse mm-hmm. um, and one about suicide and, you know, the thought process behind that. And why didn't you tell the kids? And I thought, well, that's a very good point, because uh, the answer is I was a coward. And I'm still a coward to a point, but I pulled the, the kids in and told them, look, I've done this. It's not to embarrass you or cause you any shame or harm. That's all dealt with. We're moving forward and we're, and we're reaching out and we're helping a lot of people. And that's the key. That's all you need to know. And, yeah. and that's all you need to focus on, you know. Well, uh- what were you worried about reaction-wise from kids, wife, the world? What, what was the worry? Do you know, it's, again, I think it's that simple thing of it's all the stigmas that are attached to it. You know, as, as a child, you're very vulnerable. Yeah. As the eldest child, albeit I was still very young, um, and, you know, I've said it to children when I was a police officer, and I've just had a police officer say it to me. It wasn't your fault. Yeah. However, yeah. when it's happening to you, mm. it is your fault because it's happening. Yeah. And you can't... Um, uh, me personally, oh yeah, I don't know about anyone else, I can't shake that off. You know, I feel that I am, at some bizarre way, to blame for what happened to me. Clearly I'm not. Yeah. But it's all the vulnerabilities that go with it. And then... You know, it's the add-on of the threats. If you tell anyone, I'll kill yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Shit. That's a, that's a big thing, you know. The, the, bla- um, the 
do you is it a dual thing? Do you feel um, you're about to bring pain into everyone's world by talking about this? I and get, you know, we we look at today and <laughs> young people's perceptions um, around certain subject matters, be it mental health or child abuse. I mean, you know, my youngest lad sort of when I told him not what had happened, but loosely what had happened. He just got a bit embarrassed and, you know, my middle lad was sort of shocked. But just went, all right. Yeah. And that was that. Yeah. I told my oldest lad and he was a little bit, he was a bit pissed off because it seemingly I've told thousands of other people that have seen our little videos yeah. before I told them. And rightly so. Yeah. You know, I should have told them. Right, okay. But I was scared. I was a coward. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, honestly, I... Phew, I wouldn't even know where to begin to try and explain how I felt with that. It, it's just the weirdest thing. I think the majority of people sit with it, right? I think very few people who have experienced those things are ready at any point in their life to talk about it. It's just in your perception of the future, mm. it's easier to not talk about it. Yeah. Meanwhile, it is doing damage. And I, and I think, I just want to be clear on what I said earlier, you're about to bring pain into people's worlds. But the reality is, is that when I hear something like that, I just feel inspired. I'm like, God, we shouldn't keep anything locked up. We can all understand each other better than we give each other credit for. Absolutely. Um, You know, moving forward to present day, this morning we've we've been fortunate enough we were invited to the American Embassy to do a a presentation to a load of um, firearms cops. And we've taken them through that presentation and taken them through... Um, a bit of a journey um, and we've not gone in there and used great big long medical terminologies or big pink and fluffy words and that. we've just been straight to the point and we've given that that personal experience of what happened to me um, as a former police officer and when you're going through the stigmas and everything else that's associated with mental health it's really interesting to watch that crowd of 60, 70 airy-ass coppers, male and female, yeah. all of a sudden the heads are going down. Yeah. And you're, you're looking at them ticking off that, yeah. that checklist in their own little head. Yeah. That's me, that's me, or, oh, you know, that's me. Yeah. Some get up and go, they can't... Can't deal with it. No. Yeah. And we had a former guy with the last one we did who was a former Special Forces operative. Imagine what that guy's seen. But during the process of me telling... My story, it just collapsed. It was a wreck. Had really? to get up and go. And you think to yourself, you know, people look at trauma. Yeah. What is trauma? Yeah. Trauma can be anything. It can affect you there and then. It can affect you 20 years down the line. You know. It's completely relative. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so funny. When I look at you, we've just met today, you fit the, in my head... The description of, I'm 39, the description of, <laughs> here is a friendly chief of police type character. <laughs> That's what you look well, like. I've like, been called far worse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you look like that friendly, kind person who's obviously, you know, is there to hopefully help people. And um, you don't, um, growing up as well, you just don't, I just never in my head pictured these people are in pain. No, uh, it's very kind of you to say that, what you've just said. Um, it's, again, it, it's, it's all about perception. You know, and I often say to people when we're doing these presentations, and I'm not a public speaker, I hate it, 
oh, I'll shit myself when we're doing it. You know, <laughs> you're when you stood behind a lectern, you, you're quiet, but they can't see your legs underneath that lectern going like that. It's the old swan scenario. Um, and, you know, I, I say to these boys and girls, this is what they're doing on a daily basis. When the bells go down and you've got to go to an incident on a blue light, the public perception, and it was mine, don't forget I joined the job very late in life, that as a police car goes by on a blue light that's been sat in all that traffic with everyone else, uh, <laughs> don't want to sit in the traffic anymore, <laughs> going to be late for the kebab, going to be, but potentially they're going to a situation that could change their lives for the rest of their lives and they won't even know about it. You know, and you know, for me, again, it's sort of, I'll only speak about myself because I can't speak for anyone else because we're all individuals and we deal with, with the trauma and, and matters differently. But every time we got a, an immediate grey call, I had the blue lights, you know, I'd jump into the vehicle and off we'd go. And I'd be driving, if, especially if I was by myself, and I'd be wanting to get updates. I knew roughly what I was going to. I knew that it was going to be quite horrible. But to me, that was normal. Looking at the public as I drove past on the blue lights, yeah. I knew what was going through their heads. You know, I remember after a particularly long day, um, I'd been um, at the HAC, um, just round the corner from here, um, in the temporary mortuary after the London bombings, and I was helping identify all the victims. And I remember going home. Oh, we'd done a sort of 14, 15-hour day, and... Trust me, it was horrific what we were doing. Um, and I remember just listening to people on the train. The police this, the emergency services that. Why is my train late? I need to be here. Someone's waiting down a pub for me. And I'm thinking, do you know what? If you could have two seconds in my head yeah. and see what I've dealt with today. Yeah. But that's the public for you. Well, yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing. You're part of both worlds, Absolutely, aren't you? yeah. And, and I think that's where a lot of... If I thought, if I pictured you being in that moment, I think the cognitive dissonance of experiencing absolute horror, someone's life has ended because their daughter, their only daughter's died or something like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's all they were living for or, yeah. or cared about, whatever. And then you've got somebody who's late home or they're missing a match or something. <laughs> yeah, Not exactly. even live football, but Joey, you know yeah. I'm like kind of like <laughs> living in those worlds. You you must hate the world. <laughs> you must, in a way be more protective than ever over your corner of the world. I just can't imagine all these different emotions in one. It's really bizarre um, because you're, you're trying to, I don't know, categorise everything in what is normal, bearing in mind that we've stepped out of the normal perception of normal, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. And, you know, I would go home, especially if I dealt with, um, say, a fatality um, involving a young person, or I delivered a death message where there were young people at the address, I would go home, and before I'd crack open the beer, especially if the kids were in bed, I'd go up and I would stand in their bedrooms and just for a couple of seconds be so grateful yeah. that they were in bed and I knew they were waking up tomorrow because I just left a devastated family behind. Yeah. Um, and, and you do, you, you sort of... You become hardened to it and it's wrong. Um, you know, I can remember, dare I say, a typical scenario, nearly Christmas, um, we were dealing with an incident um, down at Ilford, and we'd sort of helped this 
elderly lady. She'd fallen down the last couple of steps of the station on, onto the platform. And she was okay. Um, just I think her dignity was damaged a wee bit. She'd pro- rolled East End. Uh, <laughs> I'm fine. And, uh, yeah, she was like, get off, don't need any help and all the rest of it. And a gentleman came up to us. Oh, I think you do a wonderful job. Thank you very, very much for what you're doing. And he said, I was coming over to help this lady. But he said, thank you for that. And the station supervisor came out. He said, don't worry, girl, station accident, I'll, I'll log it. So me and my mate, we went up the stairs to go to our vehicle to, to crack on with what we were doing. We heard this almighty bang. And we just looked at each other. I thought, surely not. And the guy who had just joined us come running over. Oh, I think someone's just been hit by a train. So we turned about, went down the stairwell... And without being too graphic, yeah, someone had been hit by a train and they were all over the place. So straight away, we're, we're switching on to the task, witnesses, da-da-da-da-da. And I went straight into the supervisor's office to check the CCTV. It was the gentleman who had just spoken to us. I, once I'd established the fact that it, there was nothing untoward, this gentleman had just taken his life, um, we got down to the horrible task of recovering... Uh, the deceased person, and dealing with the aftermath. And I had to go, once we'd searched the, the gentleman and his belongings, um, I then had to go and deliver the death message. And it was about three, four days before Christmas. So I knocked on this door. Um, I could hear the kids running up the hallway. Oh, my God. And you just try and adjust yourself. And I was thinking, oh, I really, you know, I was aware that I was struggling at this point. Is this the same day? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very often, that, that, that's the way it would go. Um, and I was in quite a posh part of Essex, a very wealthy area, and the door opened, and there I am, got my flat cap on and trying to look as tidy as I could, having just dealt with such a, a, a messy situation. And this, this boy was probably around the same age as my oldest lad, and I don't forget what he said to me, and I didn't expect it. Where's my fucking dad? And I just looked at him, and I was lost for words. I just didn't know what to say. Uh, it just blew me away, because I was in such a, dare I say, a well-to-do area, and this kid was anything but the perception of what I was expecting. And then another kid come running down the corridor, he's looking at me, and he didn't say anything, and he was about the same age as my middle boy. And then to top it, their little sister come running down, and she was probably a bit younger than my youngest. And I'd already clocked on the wall um, a family picture and I'd already I'd got some photographic identification of the deceased and I knew straight away that that was, that was Dad. And then Mum eventually put her head round the door um, and I tried to explain to her in the best way that I could. And then she said to me, well, can you explain to the kids why their dad ain't coming home? So I go into the kitchen and trying to tell children roughly around the age of my children you know, four, three, four, five days before Christmas that Dad ain't coming home. Um, there's no way to, to put that to him. And the reaction was it's unbelievable. Um, and eventually got some family friends to come round and family members. And, you know, and I was sort of walking out of the house and the lady said to me, can you go and tell his mum? Yeah, OK. She lived around the corner. So I got in the, in the car, and I must admit, I had a bit of a cry in the car. I, I found the whole thing really quite emotional. Um, drove around the corner, and 
just looked up at the, the address. I could see a light on in the, in the upstairs um, bedroom. And the, the window opened. And this woman screamed like a banshee at me. She said, oh, fucking thought he's dead. We told you. We told you he needed help. You know, you just think to yourself... Jesus. Oh, of course, all the curtains are then switching. You know, the neighbours are like, what on earth's going on here? And the lady came down, opened the door, and punched me square in the chest, nearly knocked me off my feet. I've been hit by some big blokes in my time, but, you know, when you just sort of like, I've got to try and process this, and she went back in, and I got on the radio, and I gave them the update to say that I delivered the death message to the deceased wife... Next to kid, yeah. ..and his mother. And I went, yeah, all right. Um, we've got someone at Romford who's jumped the barrier. Can you go down and deal with that? So when we go back to the early questions of how do you normalise stuff or prioritise stuff... I don't know how you have a choice. You don't. You just... You get on. <laughs> it's, it's the weirdest thing. It is just like, you know... And I, there's loads of stories like that. And, and the boys and girls are doing it daily. You know, they're out there now doing that as we speak. Yeah. You know, and there's... There's no respite for them. They're getting shorter in numbers. The, the workload is getting he- heavier day by day. There's no resources. There's no money. And yet you're expected to, to crack on. And people are falling. You know, I think this, yeah. in January this year, by <laughs> January the 13th, which is a bit of an uncanny number, six police officers are taking their own life. That's six police officers in the beginning of January this year. And there's been a load more since fire service, ambulance service, and it's just not recorded. You know, people are struggling. Yeah. Because everything that's attached to mental health and well-being, it's all the stigmas, it's the embarrassment. For a lot of people, you go to your supervisor and you've got to have this trust, haven't you? You've got to have this, yeah. this element of trust because you're about to say something that yeah. could end your career. Absolutely. I, I'm just thinking, I don't know where you turn with that experience. Like, I hear it now and I'm thinking the, most, the saddest thing uh, is that people are experiencing this in, in an isolated environment and then, like you say, the next person is go and check out this thing for us, do yeah. that. It's covered off. You know, you, you, what you said earlier on, you, you think about the, the what-ifs and could-ofs and maybes and perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. You could apply that to so many jobs. Yeah. You know, um, I think during my 11 years that I was in, um, I had two situa- three situations where we managed to actually prevent someone from taking their lives. Yeah. Um, and we were there at the right time and in the right place. Normally you get that call and you're going to pick the pieces up. But again, when you try and rationalise that or normalise it and, and describe that moment as you're walking up a, a flight of stairs onto the platform... A lady with two young children is literally mid-flight to an incoming train, and you don't ask me how you pull them back from that moment. All three of them. Yeah, and you're then fighting with mum. Kids are screaming. They don't know what's going on, and mum's taken away. You've got to then look after the kids. It's a bizarre old game. I just it's blowing my mind <laughs> on what um, you have to what you've worked with and what you've had to I, help I enjoyed fix. it. It was a, an immensely challenging job and I loved it. You know, um, I was f- far from academic, but I don't know, I just, I think, given my, my life growing up, um, I've been able to apply a lot of, 
I don't know, common sense. I, I don't know. Uh, just, mm. just be normal. Just be, just be you. Just help people. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In any walk of life, you get your, your batch of individuals are clearly wrong. Yeah. Um, and shouldn't be doing the job that they are, but they do. Um, but you know, the, the police get a bad press, and I understand that because the police in general don't help themselves. You, know? you don't think? No. Um, it's not necessarily the officers on the ground, it's the, the senior management who mm. are so detached mm. from yeah. the reality of life and what's going on on the streets. Yeah. Um, their perception is this big PR game. Right. They're, they're not on the streets being spat at, having acid thrown over them, yeah. you know, potentially being stabbed. You know, uh, there was a, a picture in the paper, I think, was it yesterday, a police officer was smashed over the head with a hammer. Um, and, you know, this is day-to-day stuff. No yeah. one, No one gets that because... Yeah. They're tucked away in their little, it's going to sound very horrible, in their ivory towers, thinking about the next rank. And when we come back to the core matter of mental health within yeah. their service, yeah. we can't talk about that. No. Because at the end of the day, let's be clear, it's an injury on duty. Yeah. It's not something you're making up. Post-traumatic stress, the answer's there. Post, it's already happened. Sure. The trauma, yeah. the incident you've been to, the stress... It's like cutting yourself. It's a stress on the body. It's a stress on the brain. Yeah. So you wouldn't have had that had you not been doing that job. There should yeah. be something there in place to, to help you get through that and, and to enable you to be able to talk openly and, you know, and confidently without the fear of losing your job. I don't know. Yeah. how It almost feels like how has it even survived like this? Through the goodwill of the boys and girls that are in the job. And I, and I mean the emergency services in general. Because yeah. without that goodwill we certainly wouldn't have the amazing people that we do have in our services. Yeah. You know, look at, um, I'll, I'll use a gentleman, uh, Leon McLeod, who's a BTP officer. We interviewed him Leon, a couple of weeks ago. What Love him. Uh, yeah. What an amazing bloke. Uh, uh, completely detached from his own, yeah. you know what I mean, um, uh, wonderfulness. Yeah, and, it, and that's it. That's what I mean. It, Leon. Yeah. My God. I wish I'd sort of met him many, many moons ago and grown yeah. up with him because, to me, he is what humanity is all about. He's mm. such a such a nice bloke. Yeah, and grounded, and and especially after what he experienced yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, and then he did the marathon on behalf of of our little organisation. You know, and there's other people that have, have done some incredible stuff for us. Yeah, but it's given them a platform to to um, you know to relive those horrible moments in their life that have brought them to where they are now. And it's given them the confidence to, to move forward. Yeah. And, and I think Leon, bless him, and I know he probably cringe when he hears this. <laughs> I think Chris, yeah. He's just... Yeah. He's a special bloke. Yeah. You know, and I mean that in the nicest term. No, I know. He, you know he's just an he incredible just man. He just hates praise. I know. <laughs> and, and again, you know, the vast majority of guys and girls in the job do. It's, yeah. it's what we do. It's what yeah. we've done. Yeah. You know. Um, but... Yeah, uh, it's so interesting. Do you think that that um, that way of being of saying, look, it's part of my job, I'm, I'm here to do it. Do you think that um, that's an, a, necess- a necessity for long term success in the in it in it? And I don't uh, I don't mean burying the issue. I mean yes having, and no. Having a broad understanding of you're doing, you know, this is what life's about. It's helping. Yeah, uh, I think that, you know, if you are able to go to work um, and not be afraid to 
speak openly, given how politically correct everything is nowadays. You know, you can't even fart in a room without someone complaining about you. Yeah. And that's how it is. It's, it's, oh, it's just shocking. I find it very... It's the childish humour in me. I just... It gives me the giggles. It always has done, always will do. You know, you can't beat a good fart. Um, <laughs> however, but that's the reality of what, of what we're dealing with now. For some people, it's very offensive and, you know, and it's, it's frowned upon. So you've got to weigh up that balance of your yin and yang sort of thing yeah. and choose your audience and, yeah. and everything that goes along with it. But when you're out there doing your job, that's it, it's your job. Yeah. Once you finish your job, that's it, you go home. You put your kit away in your locker. Clearly you've got to walk about with your warrant card in your pocket. But don't use that as a defence mechanism or a method to belittle other people or whatever. Do you know, I arrested hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people during my career and I was known as a good thief taker but I equally took home as many people in the back of the van or car that you know I wouldn't arrest them because it was the right thing to do you know treat people you know people how you'd like to be spoken to or treated with a bit of you know civility manners cost nothing yeah um however if you want to bring it down to a level that only you understand then bring it on because I was I'm a great leveller. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was back in the day. Um, but, yeah, you just do your job. Be proud of what you do. Be proud of who you are and what you represent. A lot of people, as I say, the, you know, even the boys and girls in the, the fire service come under a lot of scrutiny now. You know, Grenfell Tower, um, a dreadful episode um, for the fire service. Um, and there's lots of lessons that have been learnt. And it goes back to what we said right at the beginning. Through something bad, something good will come about. Yeah. Sad loss of life is yeah. tragic. Yeah. However, things are being put in place now, hopefully, to, to prevent that scenario from happening again. Yeah. You know, our ambulance staff, they go out, our paramedics, our technicians, they go out to calls and they're getting ambushed, they're getting bricks thrown at them, they're being assaulted. Back in my day, that never happened, you know. Um, and I sound like an old man, and I, I feel like one. You know, I'm 53 yeah, in a few months' time. But there was a lot more respect back in the day. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, I do struggle with a, the concept of a youth today with their, their manners towards emergency services in general. I get, I get the police have got a bad press. I get that because that's the nature of your job. You're there to take someone's liberty away at the end of the day if they've committed an offence. There are bad in the job, don't get me wrong. Right, I mean, yeah, Leon said there's been there's some bad eggs. Yeah. I, I'm, not, um, I'm not privy to the data on this. I, don't, I, I should look into it a lot more, but I feel like the, the way that people behave towards the police is not necessarily just about the police, but also about society at large, do you know what I mean, and, and people's power in society, people's ability just to have a, like, you know, a regular day... And then the police are at that biting point when, do you know what I mean? And yeah. So forget, forget kind of like alcohol and things like that. Yeah. that that's yeah. one, a whole bunch of other stuff. But it feels like you guys are just in the, the place where all these things come to a head. You're, yeah. call, you're always called when something's gone wrong. Absolutely. Right? So, so the things that begat that, if I can use yeah. that term, they're not necessarily anything down no. to, to the police. No. They're, they're society and the economy's issue and, and the media's issue and all the, all the people that pump you know, anything pernicious into our world <laughs> that promotes hate or division, you know, or all that stuff, yeah. that comes to a confluence when, you know, 
either violence or anything like that happens, right? So, You're okay, there. let's look at um, uh, the... Um, I've forgotten the gentleman's name there. Um, the gangster that died a few years ago and we had all the riots. Um, I've forgotten the guy's gangster name. Gangster that died? What, like a, an old school? Mark, Mark, Mark Duggan. Yeah. Duggan. Oh. So when Duggan was shot by the police, oh, yeah, yeah, if yeah. we remember that, yeah. he was en route to go and kill a member of his own gang. Oh. Yeah. Um, Did he fam- have a weapon? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> his family portrayed him as being an innocent individual. He was well known to, to police. He had a long list of criminality behind him. Um, but because the police intervened, Rightly or wrongly, I wasn't there, so I can't defend the actions of yeah. the officers concerned. Um, all of a sudden, London's being burnt down and broken down by that group of um, Supporters. society yeah. because it's the police. Yeah. It's, that's a free ticket to, to burn people's businesses down, to break property, to steal, to cause people a lot of misery. And I remember <laughs> turning up at various locations... And taking the full brunt of that absolute hatred yeah. from those young people. Yeah, so what began, again, what, what kind of came before them was dissatisfaction, right, in society. Mm. That they weren't, either they didn't have an identity or, uh, look, there are always people who just co opt things because they're yeah. just a fucking pain in the arse. <laughs> yeah. right, that, that, that definitely happens. And you see that, you know, in all t- types of riots. Some of just love a bloody, mm. you know. But a lot of other people get involved or they're mobilised because they literally think there's no, no other choice for yeah. them or any other place for them. And I actually think it's very similar to um, the drug situation. It's like drug, dr- drugs, uh, when people take drugs mm. or drink to excess, whatever it may be, they're fixing a problem, right? Yeah. And that's already happened way, way, way yep. down the line. And that's like you guys. You yep. get called at the last stage to fix a problem. But and it's too late. You can't. I don't think drugs nor the police can solve any of this stuff. No. This is the duty of the wider government, politics, society, everything. Do you know, we, we could sit all day long because that is such a, a topic to, <laughs> to discuss. It's so open-ended yeah. and there's so many answers and, and difficult questions that need to be put out there and answered. You know, I grew up, um, if I stepped out of line, I got clipped round the ear on. I had respect for the police but equally I feared the police Um, because that's the way it was again is it right is it wrong I don't know Um, my lads are growing up um, they've got their opinions and their views some of which I wholeheartedly disagree with Mm. Um, give us one give us one it's too many Um, just one that comes to mind so my oldest lad he's Soon to be 21. Um, and basically, he uses a lot of language I just simply don't understand. The boomers and um, what's all that about, I don't know. However, he sort of blames my generation for what's happening now. What, what, what? Um, in relation to house prices being too much, we should have bought more properties when we were younger, we should have done this, we <laughs> should have done that. And you just sit there and you go, really? Really? Is this just stuff you've read? I don't think read? the individuals you know, necessarily always... To, to blame it's the policies that are put in place and how humans exploit them exactly so when you look in the grand scheme of things and we're looking at the psychology now of all of this yeah has he just latched onto something that he's heard or he's read um because he's a big reader he's a big thinker yeah um and he's really into that 
Yeah. And, and I sort of think, you know, fair play to you, mate. He's you, definitely onto something. Absolutely. Like, but don't get pigeonholed into believing that because this has happened, it's that part of society's fault. Yeah. With every action, there's a reaction. I can, we know yeah, that. You've said it. It's yeah. open-ended. There's a confluence of all these different things being absolutely. pumped in. And in every, as you've already said as well, there's good and bad in every yeah. of those. Yeah. So some people had a good idea. Oh, let's let's you know make it easier to buy a house and rent it out. Yeah. And then some people were like, yeah, you know, there's the exploitative version of that as yep. well. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, 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 it's a massive, deep, yeah, it's yeah. a massive issue. And actually, there's a whole job in there yeah. if you wanted to get involved in oh, that. There's a, there's goodness. loads of jobs in that space to uh, unpick know, it. And, and when you used to deal with young people, um, you know, I would only deal with people if I really had to. You know, the best part of my job was seeing people on their way and getting home safely. Yeah. The moment I had to intervene in something, then clearly something's gone wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I, within the job, people talk about racism. You know, um, the vast majority of police are, are labelled racist. Mm. They're not. Some are. Yeah. And let's be clear. Yeah. But there's that sort of person in every walk of life. Someone who's got their very strong perceptions, beliefs, um, it's inherent in, a, in everyone. Yeah. But it just shows or manifests itself in, in other ways. Yeah. You know, I was asked by um, a black officer when I, knew, when I was new to the job, I was yeah. having a, some training input. Um, if I saw a group of black lads walking down the street, would I stop, stop them and search them? And my simple answer was, well, why would I? Give me Unless, more data, please. <laughs> absolutely. If I have reasonable grounds to suspect an offence had taken place, yeah. then clearly no more than I would stop a group of white people. Yeah. You know, Asian people, it matters. Uh, this inherent thing within society of, of everyone's racist, it drives me around a twist. You know, and we can all... You know, I used to hear a lot of the time, well, I can't be racist, I've got black friends, I've got Asian friends, I've got, you know, gay friends, lesbian friends. So what, does that make you any better than anyone else? Treat people how you'd like to be treated. Yeah, Full yeah. stop, that's the golden it. golden rule, yeah. Absolutely. Totally. And that is also a big issue, though, that they've, people with crazy... Well, what we might consider to be crazy views have more of a platform now with technology. Of course. They can reach out. We just had a chat with... Um, and, uh, another uh, podcast guest who said exactly that. It's like before you walked into a pub and went, I don't like, I hate Jews or something. Yeah. And everyone goes, shut the fuck up. But, <laughs> yeah. but now they can go, I hate these people. And someone goes, me too. Yeah. You know, you know when I was a kid in the army, the, the biggest thing that was going on then was the Cold War yeah. and Northern Ireland. Yeah. So does that mean that I hated every Irish person I come against? Yeah. Oh. I'd, I find it really fascinating. The kind of the concept of any kind of prejudice, I find it really interesting in what's going on in that mind. And I really think education, and this is me being a you know um, <laughs> positive, perhaps a bit naive, <laughs> but I think education unlocks all of that stuff. If you educate people to like Stuart Lee's got a great routine where he says. Um, you know, and before, <laughs> before um, you know, it was Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. It was the uh, the Beaker folk uh, coming over here with their their cupped, you know, uh, yeah, water and things like that. You know, if you learn a little bit about the history of Great Britain or mm. Europe all over, and if you have a DNA test, yeah. which is a really Done great that, one, to have, yeah. yeah, you start to become oh, okay, so I'm four percent, you know. Again, they're as good as the data is now, but do you know what I mean? I I find it fascinating. I really want to get a heavily kind of discriminatory person on the podcast and have a conversation with them and try and just unpick, you know, at what point do you disagree? What is your issue? Yeah, you know, and again, 
I, I would always treat people with, you know, the way I would like to be spoken to or dealt with. And as I say, the perceptions of of police officers is one generally of, uh, well, two things. You're a bully or a racist. Mm. And clearly when you was at school, you got bullied, so that's why you became a police officer. It was always a good one on a Saturday dealing with the football hooligans, you know. Yeah. You're only picking on me because you got bullied. Uh, clearly you've had a few beers, mate, and you can't handle yourself and you're being a nuisance. That's why I'm talking <laughs> to you. You know, you're a grown man. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, um, social media today will promote and bend anything mm. and we're all very aware of that you know whether it be political of a racist nature of any nature if someone wants to get a point across yeah the best way is via social media your facebook your twitters your instagrams yeah and people latch on to it because they for some bizarre reason believe it yeah yeah you know? well it reinforces their you know their view doesn't it of course well. you know and when you've got very little knowledge of that topic or subject matter yeah. but because everyone else is going with it yeah i tell you what yeah, I'll stick with your brother. Again, it gives yeah. people meaning and feel like for some. I, I, you know, it's very tribal, isn't it? It's very. It's really interesting. I'm kind of trying to find the link of what we've talked about, and I'm thinking like there's lots of kind of unthinking. Yeah, and I think, and I, I understand the space of you know coming in from a stressful day. It's so easy to drink yep. a big glass of wine or a beer yep. and to be immediately removed from those pressures. And then the last thing you want to do is then, now let's get stuck into this big old discussion. Absolutely. Have you, yeah. you been to therapy? Have you done therapy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, therapy is like, sometimes you're on your way to your therapist. You're like, do you know what? Do I really have to do that? I feel good today. Yeah. I don't want to even go. Exactly. And so it, it is work. You know, it's constant work. And I think when people go to those shortcut options, whether they join somebody who's got belligerent views or is, it's all about separating, it's just like a, it's a quick hit of making me feel a bit better for about today. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've just been able to go up by somebody else. I'm going to just co-op this or send yeah. this nasty tweet out to somebody yeah. without thinking. Yeah. I think maybe a bit more thought and time and communication. You know, again, I think on a, on a very personal level, when I was a police officer, there was never a greater feeling if it was all kicking off than when, dare I say, the cavalry arrived. Yeah. And it didn't matter whether it was a white colleague, a black colleague, a brown colleague... We're all brothers and sisters doing the same job. Yeah, yeah. And, our, you know, every confidence in those people that have turned up because they've got my back and I had theirs, yeah. you know. But the perception from the public yeah. is, is somewhat different. And it's, and it's a shame, you know. Um, and with the sort of treatment around mental health and stuff like that, I didn't realise until I started having sort of EMDR and stuff like that what I've actually dealt with. Yeah. You know, um, and I used to go home punch drunk. I would have yeah. to go to bed for a couple of hours. I was so mentally drained. Uh, yeah. And at the thought of going back to that um, trauma therapist again, yeah, the yeah. week a week later to to relive a lot of unpleasantries. Yeah. I'd rather have just gone back to the fridge and had a beer. Yeah. <laughs> it's that vicious circle. I literally you feel like I mean? one now. I feel, yeah. I feel like I've, you know, had like a micro percentage <laughs> of, um, of that. We've just hit the kind of hour mark. Okay. And we normally ask a whole bunch of questions, but your story has just carried us through. I'm just... Yeah. I am... Um, so we haven't, asked, we haven't done our normal job. I'm sorry about that. But it. no, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's been a com- really compelling and shocking story. I've literally been in tears at some point uh, throughout this. So um, I'll, uh, hopefully we'll have, we'll have you back on um, be very later nice. on. Thank you. Yeah. I'd love to revisit it and yeah. talk uh, at length, especially see how this year pans out with all your endeavours. Yeah, we're, it's, um, 
we've got a lot of work to do. We're going through a big organisational sort of change. Um, and we're working so hard now to get our, ch- our full charitable status. Yeah. And I don't think it's too far away. Um, and that will help a lot of people once we get that, yeah. that full status. You know, we, we cover the cost of treatment for all those that come to us. We now have a bit of a backlog situation, which is something we knew was potentially going to happen. Yeah. Um, but it's not helping the boys and girls that need help now because they're getting it nowhere else. Yeah. And well, I'll make that quite clear. Um, we are the only organisation that helps our emergency services workers. All the other stuff that's out there, fair play, they do a great job, but they only signpost. Right. And the NHS, bless them, they, are, they just can't cope. I could imagine. You know? um, so, again, it's that vicious circle, and we have the best trauma-focused therapists in the country. Fantastic. A little, well, going back just before we really got this thing going, someone said to us, do you realise that you could be as big as Help for Heroes? Mm. And as a former soldier, I just laughed, because realistically... There's nothing bigger than help for heroes. Right. But I honestly believe that now. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I want because there are so many people out there suffering in silence. Yeah. It's awful. I don't want anyone to go through what I put my wife and children through. Yeah. And that's the whole reason we set this up. That's fantastic. Because nobody else is there to do it. We'll put all the links on the uh, podcast and get people to get in touch if they can help support in any way or, um, more importantly, if they think they've suffered. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming no, on. No, thank you for having me. I'm sorry we didn't get through uh, this right. set of questions. Do you know what? <laughs> we always give the floor to the, yeah. the stuff we're learning about the pair of us. Do you know what I mean? It's fascinating. And, um, yeah, it's really... Um, uh, give me a lot to think about. A lot. Thank you. Thanks so thank much. Thank you for the opportunity, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank right. you. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks, Kate. Oh,